everybody. It's Amanda Reyes, and it's the Made for TV Mayhem show, and that's the best Santa Claus impression I can do. I can do a really great Harpo Marks, though. You guys ready? Here we go. Is that good? <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so, <laughs> honk, honk. In, case, in case you're totally lost um, here, this is our Christmas episode of the Made for TV Mayhem show. We do it every year. We are joined. Oh, first, I'll say I'm here with my regular co-hosts. They both were able to make it tonight. So I'm here with Dan Budnick and Nate Johnson. And we are so excited to have the three of us together again. But also, we have one of our dearest friends and one of our favorite guests, Joanna Wilson, who I guess has several books out um, and a couple of websites. I hope I get this right. Christmas TV history would be, I think, the main hub. Is that right, Joanna? That's right. ChristmasTVHistory.com. Yay! Where you talk about all things Christmas all year long. And <laughs> it's amazing, and it's festive, and it's upbeat, and it's positive, and it's for everybody, and we love it. And every year she comes on, and we either talk about a TV movie, or we play a Christmas game, or we change it up uh, like we're going to do tonight. And we're going to talk about an episode of an anthology show. Now, the anthology show was something I just stumbled on. I actually wasn't that familiar with it until a couple of years ago. It's called The DuPont Show with June Allison. It ran from 1959 to 1961. I'm not sure if they've done more than one Christmas episode, but um, a title came up to me when I was doing some research for that book I did on Yuletide Terror, um, a History of Christmas Terror on Film and Television. Um, the... Uh, the episode was called A Silent Panic, and I ended up watching it thinking that I would incorporate it into the chapter I wrote, which was on anthology shows that had scary Christmas episodes, but it didn't really work with the format, but I was so taken by the episode, I never forgot it, and it was always on the back of my mind to talk about it somewhere, so I thought this would be a great opportunity for us. So before we get into Silent Panic, um, I should also say we're also going to play our TV game. We've changed it up. Joanna got really edgy, and we'll explain the rules when we get to that in the second half of our program, but first I want to catch up with Joanna because I haven't really talked to her at all this year we've both been so busy um and i just want to find out what have you been doing joanna i have been busy getting the updated expanded encyclopedia tis a season tv the christmas themed uh, you know the encyclopedia of christmas themed episodes specials and tv movies finished so that it will be out this time next year oh wow that's well first of all the first volume is it was a major undertaking and that took many years didn't it it took 10 years and it came out 10 years ago. So this is now <laughs> um, almost when it comes out, the expanded updated edition, when it comes out next year, it'll be 20 years. I've been working on this. Wow. That's amazing. So thank you. I guess we were talking recently, I guess on the last episode or maybe the episode before where Christmas has really become its own cottage industry on television and, you know, Hallmark and Lifetime especially really embrace the TV movies, and there's been a whole lot of production of it. How hard has it been for you to tackle the second 10 years of your project? Well, so naively, I, you know, mentioned uh, in my encyclopedia in 2010 that Christmas was growing, and I actually thought it had reached some sort of peak. Or I thought I was really, you know, being, uh, you know, really observant by mentioning how it had had grown up to that point, but it has only exploded since. It is extremely difficult for me to keep up with it all. I work year round to to capture it all and to I have to record an awful lot of the 
the programming that comes out in November and December each year because there's just hundreds and hundreds of hours of new programming every year. I, I do capture it as long as I have 12 months out of the year and not just two, but it is, um, it, it is overwhelming and it is <laughs> a lot and it just continues to expand. Every year it gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, it blows my mind. I was actually in Los Angeles um, in early November and just for a couple of days and I was over at my friend's house and he put on the TV and Lifetime had already started airing the Christmas stuff. And this was at the very beginning of November, so weeks before Thanksgiving. And uh, a lot of it was stuff you probably uh, have already caught, but some of it was new. They had the new, I wish I could remember the name of the movie now because I'm going to drop the writer's name, Michael Verratti. Do you, do you know him, Joanna? I, I, yeah, actually I do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he wrote a, at least one Christmas movie that I know of with Parker Stevenson. And um, I, I can't even remember. His name is attached to three. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. He did one with Denise Richards and the guy that's in Starship Troopers with her, whose name I'm totally forgetting now. And I can't believe it because he played Richard on Melrose Place and Parker Stevenson's in it. And they played that, which was great because I've only seen it in part. So I was able to catch most of it. And then they also played that one with Nicole Eggert and Patty McCormick, where Nicole Eggert is sort of like this really idealistic lawyer. And she comes back home, which is like this little town, and she tries to save some piece of property, I think. And her boyfriend is, I think, working for the de her ex-boyfriend, I should say, is working for the developer. He comes back, too, to work for the developer. And then they end up sort of rekindling their love affair. And I love that movie. It comes on every year. And every year I somehow managed to catch it. So they played those two. Like, it was like November 10th or something. It was ridiculous. And they yeah. were already starting their Christmas uh, programming. Now, those I guess you have already seen, but there's lots and lots of new productions. And the Michael Variety one I'm thinking of is fairly new. It's within the last four or five years, I think. So it's it's monumental. And, and that's, I don't know, do they still do a lot of Christmas episodic specials anymore? Yeah. Do yeah. they? Yes, <laughs> there's, you know, of course, all the sitcoms and most of the dramas still produce um, Christmas episodes. There are variety specials, everything from, you know, CMA Country Christmas every year and uh, Christmas in Rockefeller Center. Derek Huff and Julianne Huff, the brother-sister team, uh, they have their own Christmas special uh, December 16th. It's it, it continues to and of course, they air all the old classics, too, you know, like a Charlie right. Christmas and Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and um, yeah, it just continues to uh, explode and expand every year. Do you ever try to catch soap opera Christmas episodes? No. Okay. Well, they're good. I have just, <laughs> I have just a few exceptions. I don't do game shows. Mm. I don't do um, commercials. Yeah. I don't. Well, how do could you, right? That would be thousands, I would imagine. Well, and someone with the passion to cover all of those. I have my hands full doing what it is that I do. And and soap operas, and t I don't do talk shows. Yeah. And, and whatever. Somebody with the passion to cover those can do that research and write the book on that. You know, that's really amazing because all the things that you uh, put in your criteria that you are not going to cover would actually create an encyclopedia as big as yours. That's how much Christmas is pervasive on television. Uh, and I never thought about that. Like when you just saying, Oh, I don't do game shows. I'm like, I can already think of game shows I've seen that have Christmas episodes and soap operas, of course, which would be more difficult if you're just a casual watcher of those and talk shows and like, and that's monumental. Um, and so 
It's interesting because it's been like this for a long time in terms of, I think the production has ramped up, like you said, but like, I think all of us have grown up with Christmas on television and it gives everybody such a warm feeling and it kind of crosses its interfaith and intergenerational. And I, I wonder what your, do you have like a idea of what your demographic is for your um, sort of fan base? Um, <laughs> I, I, it's only anecdotal. It's, and it's difficult because it's, essentially it's everybody it's <laughs> it's boomers it's millennials it's men it's women we all we all watch christmas on tv and we all watch it differently than we watch other things on tv mm-hmm. nostalgia is an important part of what it is that we're looking for uh, when we're watching and we tune in christmas on tv and we also insist on watching the same old things again and again and again yes. And that's not exactly how we watch TV in March or in August or any other time of the year. Um, the things that the Christmas programs that end up making TV history, there's really nothing else to compare them to. You know, a, a show like Frosty the Snowman, which is um, making TV history this year. It's it's celebrating its 50th year airing on primetime on a major network. And this year it's even what's unique about Frosty is that it's, spent all 50 years on CBS. It's never switched networks. It's always been on the same network, CBS. So there's really nothing else to compare it to. You can't compare it to the Super Bowl. You can't compare it to the Grammys or the Oscar ceremonies. You There's nothing else on TV to, that's been airing for 50 years except another Christmas special. <laughs> and, it's, yeah. and it's the same special. Like the Grammys every year are a different ceremony or the Oscar ceremony or even the Super Bowl or any other kind of annual um, airing of something, it's a new program every year. But Frosty is the same Frosty every year. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the same story year after year. There's really nothing um, comparable across the board. It's it's uh, Christmas TV history is utterly fascinating to me. Yeah, I, it's really fascinating to me, too. Obviously not to the – I mean, it's fascinating to me, but uh, to deep dive the way you do, I mean, that's just – you're just feeling such a hole in sort of – the pop culture world um, so well too. And in ways that like, I've never thought about until you come on the show or I've talked to you when we've hung out where you talk about what you do. And then I start to realize exactly how big it is. And it's what I love so much about. And I think we've talked about this before too, is like something I like about TV movies. And this is on a much smaller scale, but TV movies sort of build community, you know, because we all watched them probably at a certain time in our life and they created certain feelings for us. Like they were introduction to horror. Like a lot of times we saw Trilogy of Terror or whatever, or we saw, you know, Brian's song when it originally aired or something. And these things that we never forgot. And when you get people together, like on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, that join my groups, then they're, uh, you know, we're all kind of brought together by this sort of cultural moment. And, but Christmas does that times like infinity, like there's no end to the effect that it has on the culture. And it's fascinating that in and of itself and, and equally fascinating that one person is handling all of this right now. And I know there are other people who do this, but I don't think they do it to the degree that you do it. And like, 
to tackle this, like to do TV movies is pretty easy in a way because it's got a very finite history. There's so many TV movies that were made and they have a lot of the same histories because they came from three networks, you know. But like Christmas comes from everywhere and now they're like made for syndication. They're made for basic cable. They're made probably, I imagine, for pay cable. They're episodic. They're um, specials and variety specials. And then I guess um, they might be made for TV movies, of course. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. And there's miniseries. Yes. Christmas miniseries. It's crazy. Yeah. So like it's 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 just it's what I do, but times a gazillion coming from one person, you know, sitting in your in your office there and like, you know what I mean? Furiously, <laughs> like watching these things and writing about them and covering them and doing other things like you did when you wrote about Archie the Snowman and stuff like that. And it's just so amazing to me. And the fact that you have time to come on here means so much to us because because <laughs> I know you must be crazy busy in December. Thank you. But I love talking about this stuff, too. So I'm, you know, I like (laughs) talking to you and and um, Nate and and Dan about all of this, too. So this is great for me to uh, get a chance to express myself and my passion and to talk about these great Christmas programs. Yeah, it's great because it gets me kind of excited about the holiday, too. So um, you coming on every year is such a treat for us. And I hope that you're excited. Now, I haven't actually talked to you about this special. I just sort of designated what we were going to watch, and I sent it out to everybody. So I don't know what everybody's thoughts are going to be. Or, um, But A Silent Panic, which was, uh, like I said, an episode of The DuPont Show with June Allison, is is kind of an interesting one because uh, we did, I think it was called a deadly game, that TV movie a couple years ago. And I think Joanna was pretty sure and Dan as well, that it wasn't necessarily a Christmas TV movie. I just picked it because it had Christmas in it. Um, and so I don't know how we're going to feel about a silent panic because Christmas is sort of peripheral to it, but watching it again recently, I, it came to me anyway, that it upheld a lot of, credos that come around during christmas and i don't know if you guys will see it the same way but i think we'll just dive into it and see what we all think so dan do you have a little synopsis for us oh sure except i forgot the name of harpo marx's character is it benson or bronson it's or? it's benson benson okay yeah um i was thinking of renee arbogenois when i said that who, who just passed who was of course in benson um uh godspeed sir um so uh, uh silent panic takes place in a city it's christmas time uh, and and a lot of it takes place like on a snowy, wonderful snowy street. And Benson, played by uh, who's Harper Marks, is working at a department store. He is in the window display where they have all sorts of different things, and he is pretending to be like a wind up. Well, like a like a clockwork butler or something like that. Yeah, it's I like guess. a mechanical. They called him a mechanical something. And I can't remember what it is now. But he, yeah, and he kind of like moves, he does the robot around everything and, and, you know, everyone laughs and, you know, you get crowds of people like in Christmas Story standing outside looking at the display, watching him go, except the night we join him, there's a hood at the back of the crowd and two other hoods come up behind him and using a gun with a silencer, they shoot him dead and stroll away. And Benson sees it all. And it's kind of like, ah, you know, just kind of mouth wide open, like pointing and pointing. And finally someone turns around and, and a, like a little kid sees the body, tugs mom's sleeve. Mom sees the body and screams and screams and screams. And suddenly the cops are there and they take Benson. And the thing is, Benson is a deaf mute. And so when they try to question him, it doesn't really go well. Man, what it must be like. It's like in solitary only all his life. Locked up tight. 
Well, where do we start when you get no description? Come here. Yeah, come here. We'll scratch that idea. What, what did he wear? I'm... Yeah, I didn't expect him to be a Rembrandt, but, well, he could sketch a feature, a scar, start with something. <coughs> Speak up! Well, uh, it's about him, and it's kind of creepy to be talking about a guy like he ain't here when, when he is. All right. Uh, well, they ran the check. On him, I mean. Uh, he's an orphan. He was born that way. Uh, his name is Benson, if it matters. Uh, I guess he picked up the act uh, in a carnival. When he was a kid, he traveled with an uncle who owned one. The guy's dead. The uncle. All right, look, would you drive him home? At least we know where we can find him until Christmas. Then we can bring him in if there's a lead to work on. Now, they're slightly worried about him because uh, he saw the killers. And, yes, they saw him. And so, um, but they can't, he can't quite tell them that, and so they kind of let him go, but they're going to keep an eye on him and bring him back eventually to try to question him some more. And he yeah, goes um, up. Oh, yeah. just real briefly, I just want to say, like, so, um, you might get into it, but, like, um, it's kind of harrowing because they get into his backstory a little, they look him up, and yes. they find that um, he's basically an orphan, and his uncle took him in, and he learned how to do the mechanical thing he's doing in the window because his uncle took him around kind of like uh, as part of a carnival act, I think. Mm -hmm. And But we find out that he doesn't even know how to like do sign language. He was not even given like the rudimentary skills to communicate with people, so that makes it even harder for him to explain what's happening at any given moment, especially with the police. And they get yeah. frustrated with him, but... Um, there, you know, I think that they are concerned. And also, I just want to bring up that the guy who owns the store uh, that he works at, oh, yes. Mr. Popper, <laughs> is uh, Colonel Schultz, right? Yes, John from, Banner, I believe. <laughs> from Hogan's Heroes. And I didn't know he had a real accent. So anyway, yes, go ahead. Yes. Uh, so, so, the, so they let him, uh, they let him out, but they're going to they're gonna keep an eye on him. And he's out wandering the street uh, the next day, and the snow is coming down, and everything's very festive. And he sees one of the hoods one of the killers on the other side of the street and the hood comes after him and eventually he is able to Benson is able to hide in a furniture manufacturing sort of warehouse complex and um, kind of loses the um, the hood and as he's hiding like in a little cubby hole nook cranny it suddenly sounds like an English muffin but but he's kind of like <laughs> he's he's crammed in a little space you know just kind of hidden there trying to trying to keep away from the killer as this is happening the cops want to talk to him again and put out an APB on him because he's gone missing and they're worried that the killers are after him I think I think the main cop says something like you know when hired hoods go after Joe Average you you got no hope or something like that and Benson is hiding when all of a sudden someone kind of pulls him out of the space and it's the uh, night watchman who's an older gentleman, probably around um, Benson's age. And after Benson explains by pointing, uh, a lot of pointing, that he's deaf-mute, um, and I forget the night watchman's name, too. I apologize. It's, I just go, it's Daniel. Daniel, okay. Yeah. He just starts talking and talking and talking. He loves talking. He says he loves talking. And he brings uh, Benson into his shed and gives him some coffee gives him some sandwiches. Benson takes out a yo-yo and begins to play with the yo-yo. And they start to 
they start to, uh, they begin to cultivate a lovely little friendship. Say, uh, when I was a kid, there was a verse, oh, I hadn't thought of it in maybe 50 years. I like coffee, I like tea, I like the girls and the girls like me. <laughs> well, they didn't really. Oh, I wasn't much for the girls. I, uh, I guess I just wasn't much altogether. <laughs> oh, hey, I'm talking a lot, ain't I? Well, the reason is that the night watchman, he ain't troubled with much company. You know, that's a funny thing when you think of it. I like to talk, so I get me a job where I'm all alone. <laughs> I'm asleep when everybody else is up and doing. <laughs> well, yeah, one. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I never did like to eat alone. I used to think that, that if I ever stumbled on a gold mine, I'd buy myself a restaurant and I'd give away meals so that the place would always be full. <laughs> uh, you're the best listener I ever had. And you can't even hear. Unfortunately, around this point, the killers have realized where they are. And I don't know how much further I should go, but let's just say that the killers get in. Benson escapes. Uh, Daniel does not. And there's a little bit of um, torture as mm. Benson tries to save his friend uh, during this Christmas season. And I'll stop right there. That's the very basics of it. It's only a half an hour long. So there you go. Yeah, um, I'll just go ahead and start. So uh, when I came across this a couple of years ago, I was really struck by it because it's such a lovely little uh, anthology episode because it does. It's very dark because it is based on a guy witnessing a murder and then being chased by the murderer. And and there is torture in it, like they beat the crap out of the older guy. And it's very upsetting. But it's also like about friendship and warmth and finding somebody that you can spend time with and when you're lonely and it's got all these really beautiful things happening around it. And I really loved it. I was just really kind of moved by it. And I don't know that much about the Marx brothers. So this was really not my intro. I've seen Marx brothers movies, but it was kind of an intro in a way to Harpo Marx for me, because I don't know that I had thought a lot about him prior to this. And this was his first dramatic role. And, um, and he only did a couple things after this. And I think this might be his only dramatic role that we, we ever saw anyway on film or television. And I thought it was just really beautiful. It's almost like um, it's hard to go into it too critically because it is very short and not necessarily a lot happens. But I think that the feeling that it gives me at the end of it is what makes me attribute it as a sort of a Christmas entry. Uh, besides the fact that it aired like the week of Christmas and it has Christmas surrounding it. But like, but I feel like the friendship angle um, and about the kind of doing unto others sort of thing, it really stands tall for me in this. And that's why it's been in my mind to do as a Christmas special when we got around to it. But I really loved it. So I'm just going to ask everybody else what they thought. I guess I'm going to start with Nate. Nate, had you ever seen this? No, I had never seen it. Honestly, I had never heard of it. What um, did you think? I really loved it. I thought that, um, honestly, and and I'll be totally honest, I'm I'm not usually into a slower paced 
things. And I know that a lot of, you know, older um, movies and, and television shows, they, they're a little bit more deliberately paced. And it's not that's not always a bad thing, but I just feel like my attention span is just is ridiculous. I feel like I'm on one subject. Suddenly I'm on another completely. But um, this one, I thought, kept pace very well. Like I was intrigued from the beginning all the way to the very end. I found it actually kind of frightening, the whole idea of witnessing, you know, a murder and then not being able to communicate it to the police um, at all. And then the scene like you that Dan was mentioning where he um, spots the the killer, uh, you know, in, in public. I mean, he can't just run up to somebody and, you know, be like, help me or something because he can't communicate. So it's I feel like that would be a terrifying situation to be in. And I also really love the friendship he strikes up with the Night Watchman. And, you know, I thought the Night Watchman was amazing. He was an yeah. uh, awesome guy because he ba- he didn't even know um, Benson much at all. And they, you know, literally, like you said, they were like beating him to get him to tell them where he was and he wouldn't do it. And I'm like, that is a really good guy. A very stand up guy that he, <laughs> you know, went through all that for somebody that he barely knows. <laughs> We got all night to teach you to remember. Lessons get harder, but you'll get a diploma. You know, I thought it was interesting that they used the yo-yo, actually, the the killers mm, do, to sure. kind of figure out, you know, um, okay, I think you're lying to us, because they make him, like, use the yo-yo, and he can't do it. Yeah, and uh, that's how they know that it belonged to Benson, and Benson's there somewhere. Yes, and, um, yeah, I just, I, I thought it was a really uh, well done, um, you know, little, uh, I mean, I wasn't going to call it a short film, but TV show. I guess is uh, the more appropriate term. Um, but I mean, I really liked it. I found it very uh, interesting. And um, I was looking up information about this, uh, this television show. And apparently this is you know considered to be the best episode of it. So I oh. was like, Oh, okay. Well, I mean, uh, it was a good one to watch then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. i kind of wanted to watch some more of these because it's, it's the first time I've ever seen it and rewatching it. I was like, you know what? I should really dip into the DuPont show and see some other episodes. Cause I, I was so taken with this one. I, I agree. And then I, I also, uh, just as an aside, I love the little commercials that was on there too. Yes. Like there was a, the, a, the, on the version that, uh, that we saw there, the, there was commercials and it was commercials from, you know, back then, you know, and it was just interesting to see those commercials. Honestly, <laughs> I found those very interesting. So this this is actually available uh, uh, legally. Um, I, it might be in public domain, but somebody put it up on like a archive site, and um, so I'll post a link to it on the website too. So if anybody wants to watch it too, um, because it's it's a pretty nice print and everything, and it's got those commercials. Um, Dan, had you seen this before? No, no, I had not. Sorry, I was having a sip of water. I was actually <laughs> I was actually going to say, um, but, but Nate mentioned the commercials. I was going to say my favorite scene is that scene where the um, the football player puts on the sweater and goes to the malt shop. That's a great sweater, but that's which is one of the commercials. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I had not seen this before. Um, I had 
heard of it because I'm I'm a big Marx Brothers fan and I've read Harpo's um, autobiography, and mm. this is this is around the time where um, you get that uh, the uh, the great um, anecdotal story where um, they were making Ega like in the desert or somewhere. You know, you you all know Ega with the caveman mm-hmm. Richard Kiel. Sure. And and um, uh, Arch Hall Senior. Uh, had uh, was shooting a scene somewhere, and a guy walked up to him and said, "Hey, what are you doing? We're shooting a movie." Yeah, yeah, I thought so. What, what's it about? Oh, it's about a caveman. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, can I can I help you? And the guy said, "Oh no, this is my land. I was just coming to see what you were doing." Oh, you know, do you want me to leave? No, I used to make some movies back in the day. Keep keep going. And he left. And a minute later, someone came up to you and said, "Do you know who that was? Who? That was Harpo Marx." No. Oh. And so, uh, so I I had seen pictures uh, from Silent Panic, but I'd never seen it before, and I was excited to watch it because I enjoy the anthology shows. I, I will say, occasionally the writing goes a little ripe. I think that there's a moment where um, they're torturing the old guy, and it's something like, "Tell us where he is." I'm not going to tell you. Okay, well we're going to teach you another lesson, and this time you're going to get a diploma. No. I thought, I can smell something off of that line, but 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 I thought I thought it was really nice. And there is the thing with I'm a, like I said, I'm a huge Mark Brothers fan. And the thing with Harpo is that Harpo could always in the movies always get himself understood. He could always, whether it was with the horn, he would whistle. I don't know why no one has taught Benson to whistle because you would think that would that would help. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think people really gave Benson much of a thought, even his uncle. I think yes. he, you know, because when you found out he didn't even know sign language, like that it was, was just so upsetting, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that was the the thing with um, is that Harpo could always make himself understood. He would run in a room, start grabbing someone, whistling, honking the horn, making faces, pointing, doing stuff. So it's it's interesting to see him play a character who just doesn't have any of that. Yeah. And it's just it was. Until he starts chatting with the night watchman, it was so worrisome to yeah. watch him. It was just like because that's not how I'm used to seeing Harpo. Harpo is the the most anarchic. Uh, is that right? Uh, the craziest one in in the room. Mm. You know, like Groucho is nuts, Chico is nuts, Zeppo not so much. But but uh, Harpo is always the craziest one in the room. So to see him more subdued. Um, like this is, I mean, I like the fact that it's kind of, it's intimated at the beginning that he basically went into this department store, went up to Sergeant Schultz and somehow got himself a job working in the window. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. You know um, what else to speaking of Harper Mark's performance real quick, and then we'll get back to you is, um, the part after the murder where it's the next day and he's walking, I guess to work yes. and he walks by the toy display mm-hmm. and he's watching it with so much wonder. Yes. And it's yes. this, and then he sees the killer right but it's such a sweet scene where he's just it's it's just a great performance from him like you just you can see that he's like this really sweet innocent soul right Mm -hmm. and he's just so caught up in this beautiful display and then he sees the bad guy and terror just hits his face but that's like my probably my favorite moment in the episode but anyway go ahead so yeah we we do get the scenes with the cops where and it's 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 interesting because because part of me was like um it like try try another way to get through to him what you're wor- what you're doing isn't working but then i also thought this is probably this is 1960 and they probably got they do get more frustrated i mean the yeah. moment when the when the the main cop yells at him for a moment it's a little scary it's a little harrowing it's also a little funny 
just the way he goes from being calm to just yelling because he's so <laughs> frustrated that this guy can't understand him. And I will say the moment that, um, and this is an Arthur Hiller directed episode. Yes. And although Arthur Hiller has made several films that I absolutely adore, The In-Laws, I think he's kind of a flat director. Um, but he does a pretty good job with this. He keeps things moving and, and keeps things, things... And that that street set that they're on with all the extras and the snow yeah. coming down is a really great um, uh, backlot. I, I don't know where that backlot is. Yeah, once he meets the Night Watchman and the Night Watchman begins to talk, it just becomes really lovely. And those scenes are great. I could have actually watched them for like another half an hour. Yeah, for sure. Just the, just the two... just. Uh, uh, Benson responding to Daniel and Daniel talking and talking. It, the scene actually, until until sort of the end when when Benson takes out the yo-yo, it kind of reminded me of the scene from and you could take your pick, either the Bride of Frankenstein or Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Where the monster where the monster goes to visit the hermit, the blind hermit. Yeah. And the monster doesn't say anything, but the hermit is talking and talking and talking and and it's um that's sort of what that remind not not to say that. Harpo Marx's character is a monster, but it has sort of that feel of the the monster doesn't talk at that point, and and the 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 hermit can't see him, so he just thinks he's a big guy, uh, he can't see that he's green, and so he's just talking, to, and so that's what this sort of reminded me of, and, and eventually sort of the the ice is broke. The, there's the great moment where we're gonna have coffee now, and he puts down the mugs of coffee, and then and then Benson kind of takes a spoonful of sugar and holds it up for him, and he says, right. I, "I take one." And he puts it in there and smiles at him. And it's just a, it's so lovely. And then, of course, the moment the, the killers come in and start to torture Daniel, you're like, come on, Benson, you got to do this one. And he does it. It's a bit roundabout, but he, he gets it. To, spoiler, you know, the killers get caught. and The, the, <laughs> the good, good guys win at Christmas. But I, I thought it was, apart from a few right moments in the in the dialogue and writing here and there, which didn't bother me, but that all I thought when I was watching that was, we're past the point where like people like Rod Serling was were writing these things. Right. Um, so, but but apart from that, I, I really enjoyed it, and having the commercials there was great. I only wish we had had the third commercial. The third commercial isn't there. There's just a, a, a card that says "Insert third commercial here." <laughs> Come on. But yeah, I I, I quite enjoyed it. Thank you for for picking this. Oh, good. I'm glad you did, um, Joanna. I'm I'm sure you've seen this, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I've seen this um, many times, and I know a lot of people really like this one, so I'm I'm excited to talk about it. It's clearly Christmas for me because Benson's role in the windows is to draw attention, and it's because of Christmas merchandise. and And the manager, uh, Sergeant Schultz, is what we're calling him, but the, <laughs> the store owner, you know, talks about how he hired him, you know, for special attention for the windows. Um, at Christmas time, this is how a store is going to sell their merchandise is to get uh, passerbyers and walkers on the street to stop and pay attention to what's going on in the windows. And so that's Benson's role. And every time I watch this, um, I'm reminded I this is so weird. <laughs> it seemed weird then, too. In the 80s, when I was in college, the housing department put me uh, I had a college roommate who was a stranger and, and I met her when she was my roommate. Anyway, she worked as a, a living model oh, in, in, a, wow. in a window, in a store, in the mall. So this, this kind of thing was even happening in the 80s. That yeah, was big in yeah. the 80s. Klaus Nomi did it. There's a whole thing on YouTube where you can watch Klaus Nomi as a mannequin. 
Um, of course, I guess he's not moving there, but um, he's not putting on a show necessarily, but he's there uh, as part of the display. Yeah, so this kind of thing, you know, really did happen. People were were really hired to be in-store windows, and this kind of trend even continued well into the 80s, uh, even when I was in college, which is sort of weird. Um, but, yeah, I, I think this is usually considered a Christmas episode, not only because of the content and what's going on in the windows, but um, any of those establishing shots, you'll see that the downtown streets around the uh, store are all decorated for Christmas. There's all kinds of tinsel and lights, and there is a dusting of snow as well. And and I like what you said, too, Amanda, that the, the themes of, uh, of the coming together and the kindness and um, the happy ending also lend itself well to a Christmas story. One of the things I really like about this uh, episode is the powerful suspense of, mm. you know, the killers are hunting down the, the guy from the, you know, Benson, the guy from they know that has seen them kill the other hoodlum. And even when um, Benson is inside the shack with and he escapes and the, the hoodlums take the security guard back into the to the shack, we know Benson can't hear what's going on. (laughs) He's peeking around the edges of the shack because he can't even hear them coming or going or shutting the door or what's going on inside, but he knows he's got to escape. And I love all those suspenseful moments. Harpo's pantomime of how he's trying to communicate to the police and also to the store owner um, are just spot on. And and the suspense, even in him trying to communicate, it's like, we know what he's seen. We know what the story is. And there's a lot of tension there in Benson trying to get his message across and the frustration of these people who aren't being so sensitive to somebody that's uh, differently abled. I, I like this story a lot. And, and even before I had uh, seen this, I've seen this, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe more. Um, I had seen color photos mm. um, this episode, I think they're in TV Guide, like an old, oh. old TV Guide, and oh, wow. the makeup on the mechanical man on Harpo Marx Benson in color is is even more frightening. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> very unusual looking, yeah. and it sort of makes sense when you see what he's doing inside the window, and you see his behavior. You're like, oh, okay, he's creating an attraction. He's giving people on the street a reason to look into the store windows and to check out the merchandise. But if you just see still photos. It's very alarming and and almost it's almost otherworldly or or uh, horror um, related, but it's a, it's a very inspiring, pleasant story when you see it. Yeah, it's funny how it kind of moves from the darkness to the light in such a beautiful way because it starts off in such an ugly place, you know. With the what I love though at the beginning is when everybody's watching the store window that first hood the one that gets murdered he's totally into watching harpo marx's show he's like laughing and he's all yes. happy <laughs> and, you're, and then right. a year later he's this horrible hood but you're like yeah. but he just seemed like such a sweet guy watching the <laughs> window display you know so when he gets killed it's actually kind of upsetting because because yeah. he just seemed like some random guy you know and which was really well done and um i, um, I didn't mean to cut you off sorry, I, but. I don't know if you guys picked up on it but in the credits um, there's someone credited as the young stranger. Yeah, I made a note of that. Yeah. That's Bill Marks. Um, that's the little boy that points out the dead body okay. on the ground okay. to his mother. And that's Harpo's real-life son. Yeah, I made a note about Bill Marks. And we'll get to when we do the background, because he did some interesting stuff with his life. But, um, yeah, this was, like, a really wonderful episode. And I'm sorry, keep going, Joanne, if you have more to say. No, that's it. 
<laughs> oh, can, can I, I yes. just realize, I just thought of something from Harpo's autobiography that's Christmas related. What's that? Thinking about his family. There was one year, I don't remember what year it was, they had, they loved Christmas, they celebrated Christmas, and then the family said, can we celebrate Christmas again? So I don't remember what their, their uh, procedure was, but over the next year, they celebrated Christmas every month. Oh. <laughs> and I think they, I think they kind of, I want to say they sort of took everything down for a few weeks and then put it all back up again, sometimes in different fashions. And they celebrated, like, oh, I don't know what year it was. It was probably late 50s, start of the 60s around now. But they celebrated Christmas once a month throughout the year, which I thought is something I want to do before I pass <laughs> on. <laughs> so, um, so he had his heart in this because he apparently loved Christmas. But it's such a great performance, and it's so, like you said, it's so different from how I guess we're normally used to seeing him. And it's his real hair, right? Which is, I think, unusual. Am I correct about that? Yeah, yeah. Normally he wore like a fright, a fright wig. Yes. Specifically, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. And um, and it is kind of like a very quiet performance as compared to like, for considering he never spoke in the Marx Brothers, he made it very loud. You know what I mean? Up front. And, yeah, he was. Like, he was he, yep. He was yeah. there. And here it's just, it's a very quiet, almost childlike thing that's happening. And there's also like... um. Something that's in my mind right now, we were talking about when he first goes into the shed with um, Daniel, and well, a couple of things happen. First, Daniel gives him half his sandwich, and it's just very natural the way he does it, and it's really sweet, this offering of food. And then he's sitting there, and he's like, he talks about how he had, his wife had died, and you know, he's telling kind of his life story to this guy, and he hasn't had really anybody to talk to, which really just struck me so deeply. But like, the... Uh, um, Benson's response was just a smile on his face and nodding and he's trying to participate and, and I think even though he doesn't know what this man's saying like they're still exchanging something so yes. close and intimate in a way and it's it's so beautiful like just the moments in, in the shed like up to the thugs coming in is so just it's just like a little five minutes of just beauty yeah. you know what I mean it's just so sweet There's there's something too about the way where we only learn about Benson through what that one cop finds yeah. out. Whereas Daniel talks and talks and talks. And he has the moment that actually that kind of broke my heart a bit. Where, um, Well, one of the lines where he says something along the lines of, I guess when you've been pushed or something all your life, you expect that is going to happen every time. Yeah. I forget what the line is. But, but he has a line later on where he says, like, I'm just remembering a poem. It's like, I... Uh, it's like, I like coffee, I like tea, I like the gals, and they like me. Yeah. And he laughs, and he laughs, and then he says, well, they actually didn't really like me. And it's like, oh, <laughs> Daniel, knock it off. <laughs> knock it off. It's, a, there, there's, it's such a, that, like I said, I could have watched that. I could watch a road movie with those two. Yeah. Both. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm. It's just, it's so well done, and it's such a beautiful episode, and I'm so glad that we get to talk about it because I don't know that I ever heard of it before. And so Janet said a lot of people like it. So I'm assuming more people than I realize have seen it. And that's great because I think this is one of those Christmas things that um, it's not my Bernard and the genie. Like I'm not going to watch it every year. Maybe, although it's only 25 minutes and it's really easy to watch, but like it is something that I think would be a great sort of tradition for people to watch. Cause it is, it does give you such a warm feeling at the end of it. And so like, just to kind of briefly talk about the ending is so Harpo gets their, the police's attention and they come in and Daniel's, 
basically been beat really badly. And the cops come in and they're like, you know, we got you. And they're taking away the two guys. And Harpo is actually, or I should say Benson, is cradling Daniel in his arms. And then he takes the yo-yo and he does like a little yo-yo trick for him. And it's kind of that's kind of where it ends, I think. And and it's just so sweet. It's like the sweetest thing I've ever seen, you know. And you just hope that these guys stay buddies forever, and you think they probably will. And it's just such a such a nice thing to have on your TV at Christmas. Yeah. Yes. I'm getting I'm getting something in my eye, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's really sweet. And the, like like Nate said, the commercials are wonderful. Um, uh, it's it's so great to see the commercials, uh, the original commercials within the show which is so much fun because they're all about like polyester and blends and sweaters. And there's a great commercial where it's like, uh, your boss has just invited you to dinner. And there's a great uh, line where it's like, um, so you're giving your wife a call to see if she can go or something like that. And I thought in 1960, wouldn't it have been like, Hey, would you have gone like, Hey, Hey honey, can you join the, uh, me and the boss? He invited us over for dinner. Uh, no, not tonight, dear. I don't know how housewives and things worked back then, but it, yeah. seems like str- it seems like a strange way to sort of um, state it. Like, I'm calling my wife to see if she can show up. It's 1960. I don't think it worked like that. It was it was tougher for women back then. Yes. I think the call was more like, I need you at the boss's house at 7 p.m. Yeah, and wear, wear that black the- thing <laughs> that you look so nice in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, and also I guess the commercials help give it a little bit of context for when it originally aired and the type of programming that people were being exposed to then um and anthology shows to my knowledge in 1960 were pretty huge um i'm not really sure when the u.s steel hour was um or playhouse 90 but those are sort of in the same era and obviously the twilight zone and one step beyond um i don't know when outer limits was but i guess it was around the same time too so there was a lot of um these kind of one-off things happening on tv at the time which is also really great too because they got to like sort of get you for 25 minutes in a story and then move on to something else and then give you another 25 minutes of something completely new every week, which is pretty exciting and why I think anthology shows are so good and why they should probably come back. maybe. Um, so let me just give you a little background on Silent Panic uh, before we move on. Um, it ran on December 22nd, 1960 on CBS. Um, as Dan mentioned, it was directed by Arthur Hiller. I, I just wrote down two titles of things he's directed. He did Love Story and Silver Streak. Silver Streak was like my childhood favorite. I watched that movie the, so much. The, the In-Laws was mine. Yeah. I love The In-Laws, but I don't think I fully understood it when my dad took me to see it in the theater because I was like 10 and I was like, what am I looking at? But Peter Falk was in it, so I loved it. You know yes. what I mean? Serpentine! Yeah, Serpentine! Right. <laughs> All I can think of is uh, Peter Falk at the uh, barbecue when he has his I'm loaded with options apron on. <laughs> I love the out-of-towners. That movie is in oh, my top that's, 10 yeah. favorite that's movies yeah. of all time. I watch that movie at least once a year. I love mm. Sandy Dennis. I love Jack Lemmon. And the two mm. of them, everything that can go wrong goes wrong on their trip to New York City. It's hilarious. I just saw it like a month ago. I just love that movie. So, so yeah, so this is a pretty versatile director that they got, which is great. And um, I think he used to go to the Director Guild Awards when I worked at the Directors Guild. I can't remember now, but um, he was the talk of the town. I think I knew some of my coworkers kind of knew him socially and really liked him. Um, this was written by Arthur Dales, who actually didn't write much. So it's interesting that Dan was kind of pointing out some of the dialogue didn't ring true for him. And, you know, he only had written like four produced teleplays, I think, at this point and ever. I don't know what else he did. I didn't have a chance to really look him up. But he was sort of newish 
at this point. Um, as I mentioned, this was Harpo's first dramatic turn. He only had two more credits after this. This was The Red Skelton Show and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which I think was a TV series. Um, so Harpo's son, as Joanna pointed out, made his debut here. Bill Marks uh, plays the young stranger. He was only in one other thing on TV, which was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where he played two different roles in two different episodes. So Bill Marks actually talks a lot about his dad on an episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. So if you're interested in hearing about Harpo Marks, because I don't have much information about him at all here, you may want to check that out. But also Harpo's son, Bill, He's kind of an interesting guy in his own right. Um, you may or may not know that he scored a lot of B-movies, including Scream, Blackula Scream, The Return of Count Yorga, and The Terror at Red Wolf Inn. What? And those are just three of the amazing oh scores that he did in the 70s. Yeah, really, really all interesting with All guy. with hor- horns and harps. Yep. So... Yep, that's right. <laughs> so you might want to check out that Gilbert Gottfried episode. Just look up Bill Marks and Gilbert Gottfried. That's how I came across it. Uh, the DuPont show, which you know, as I mentioned earlier, ran from 1959 to 1961. She was a very big star at that point. Um, she was only the third woman to host a TV series at this stage. The first one would have been Loretta Young, and the second one was Jane Wyman. So she was kind of a trailblazer. I heard that she doesn't host every episode though and i don't know how true that is because i've only seen this one but apparently she comes into only a fraction of them but she was given the title i think the show was created by her husband dick powell um who was an actor and also a studio head uh he um appears in one episode of the dupont um, anthology show that we're talking about here it's called the summer's ending uh, and of course we mentioned mr popper was played by john banner who's best known as sergeant Schultz from hogan's heroes and of course daniel was played by an actor named ernest truix he was in one of the most famous twilight zone episodes kick the can so a lot of people may recognize him from that his stepdaughter uh you might be interested to know if you're a horror fan was married to mike kellen who slasher fans will know best as the creepy older counselor in sleepaway camp or one of the first two guys that show up in just before dawn so Ernest Truex and Mike Kellen hung out at some point, which blows my mind. That's all. I, that's the only reason why I wrote that down. Um, wow. And that's yeah. <laughs> and that's really all the trivia I have for this show. Um, it's just a really lovely little 25 minutes that everybody should take a little time out to watch. And again, I'm going to point. Uh, I'm going to post. I'm sorry. A link to the episode to watch on the website, um, which is I think just www.tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com and we'll give that out again at the end but um anyway that is a silent panic it's i'm happy to hear that we all enjoyed it and now we're going to do one of our favorite things to do with joanna and we're going to play the it's not the tv movie game anymore now i guess it's like the tv anthology game so (laughs) joanna threw us a curve here so what we normally do with the game in case you're listening for the first time is joanna will come on and she'll give us the title of three or four Christmas movies. They usually have semi-generic titles. And then we have to figure out what the movie is about. And we kind of make our own TV movie out of it. So we'll pick a cast, maybe a director, and we'll give like a brief synopsis. Brief if we're not Dan. Synopsis. I'm going to do what I can to keep it brief this evening. <laughs> and, then, and then Joanna tells us what it actually is. And uh, nine times out of ten, it's nothing that we've come close to even talking about. <laughs> guesses. <laughs> and so it's a lot of fun, yeah, because we get to throw out all these names of actors we love and create our own TV movies, and it's really imaginative. And so this time, I think Joanna has picked episodes from anthology shows. Is that correct? Yeah. Christmas episodes from dramatic anthology series. Yes. 
So we have to, she's going to give us that. And then I guess we have to dig into our anthology brains. If we know any actors from that or whatever, and then create our own um, anthology episodes. So this is going to be really exciting. Um, I'm probably just going to use Lee majors for everything anyway, just because that's what I do, but um, we'll see sure. where it goes. <laughs> so Joanna, would you want to give us the first title? Now are you going to tell us what episode, which series it came from or just the episode title? I'll give it, I'll give it all to you. Okay. Oh, you'll give it all to me. You should have been here for the for car porn episode because we couldn't oh, even yeah. think of any entendres until like the end. That would have helped. We, we had a couple at the beginning, I thought. We then, uh, we might have. Like, I didn't ask you to look we, under my hood, though, and I feel really embarrassed by that. Oh, darn it. <laughs> but, or to touch my chassis. But like, um, none of that happens. <laughs> okay, so anyway, Joanna, go ahead. Let us know okay. what the first one is. The first one is a 1952 episode of Goodyear TV Playhouse, and the episode is Mr. Quimby's Christmas Hats. <laughs> that sounds vaguely familiar to me, believe it or not. But, you know, maybe when I was doing anthology research, I came across some odd titles. Uh, I guess I'll start. So when I think of Quim- Quimby, did I say that right? Quimby? Quim- um, yeah. I think of Quigley Down Under, so I'm going to put a young Tom Selleck in it. He would have been eight or so when he did it um, as Mr. Quimby. And uh, he'll already have his mustache, so we'll think he's much older. And he's a curmudgeon who hates Christmas because he never gets what he wants, which is just a fanciful hat. He's known around the neighborhood for wearing crazy hats every year, but nobody or every day, I should say. But nobody gives him the hats he wants, even though that's what he's known for. So Every Christmas he gets really belligerent and angry and he feels like people don't care about him or think about him. But he has a young, pretty neighbor who lives next door to him, played by Loretta Young, since I just said that name and it's in my head. And um, in her first guest appearance on this anthology show. And she is new to the neighborhood and she's like a waitress, it's very working class. And she likes his jaunty hats. And so just without even thinking twice about it, she buys him this colorful hat. And they fall in love. And by the way, that wasn't funny or interesting at all. But that's my story. And I'm done. Nate? Um, Can you give me the title of the episode again? Mr. Quimby's Christmas Hats. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm going to say that Mr. Quimby is Dick Van Dyke. And he is a very, very sweet, wonderful man who runs a hat store. And everyone from around the world loves to come and see these hats that he makes himself. And they have everything. They have everything from, like, sombreros to (laughs) top hats to, I mean, everything, right? But on Christmas night is the only night these hats can come to life. (laughs) And... When you come into the store, it's magical. You put the top hat on, and you immediately become like Fred Astaire. Oh. Or you put the um, sombrero on, and you immediately, um, you know, take on that persona. You can take on the persona of any of his magical hats that you have, that they have available. And I picture that it is full. It's like an all-star cast. Like, everybody's coming into the store. Patty Duke shows up. Um and I feel that they all just want to try on these hats that kind of just come to life on Christmas. It's like a Christmas miracle. It feels all like one. To him. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of when you said sombrero, and I can't think. What's the name of the little mouse? That's the like superhero. Speedy, Speedy Gonzalez. Gonzalez. Yeah, you become Speedy Gonzalez. 
There you go. We all want that. Patty Duke and his, co- and his cousin, regular Gonzalez. <laughs> but I want to see Patty Duke as Speedy Gonzalez. Oh, yep. That, that's what happens with her. And it's a very fun, <laughs> fun Christmas time. That's so much better than mine. Dan? Uh, well, Nate kind of took my hat store. Oh, me, no. So oh. I, no, that's okay. That's okay. I'm coming up with another one, which I only have vaguely in my mind. So, um, so um, Mr. Quimby is played by Ed Wynn, Ooh. who was in one of the very earliest episodes of The Twilight Zone. And he is, every Christmas, he is an alien. I don't know if you knew this. He's an alien, and he travels around the universe uh, doing great stuff. And every Christmas, he chooses a town where something is going wrong. And he... Well, well, well. I, I, I don't know exactly what this town is going to be, but I want to say, like, um, I don't know. Um, uh, uh, William Shatner is the mayor. I don't know where that because he was in Twilight Zone. Uh, Ida Lupino is his wife, and uh, they are. There's all sorts of corruption and terrible stuff, and all sorts of hoods, like we saw in Silent Panic, who are there. And the town. We basically the way it works is for the first like fifteen twenty minutes of the movie, we see this town just going to hell. At Christmas, like maybe it starts off with like they light a beautiful Christmas tree, everyone watches it go, and then all of a sudden you hear like, and like a flamethrower or something goes off and sets the thing on fire and it collapses. You know, it's it's like that kind of town. It's that bad. And Mr. Quimby in his spaceship flies by and he has racks of magic hats that he basically he opens up the hatch. And he throws the hat like like um odd job in um Goldfinger, you know, he, he flinging his hat. <laughs> he he throws his hat and he's like, the mayor needs this hat with the propeller on it because he's gonna have to fly out of a desperate situation tomorrow. Like maybe he gets caught in a fire and he activates the hat and the propeller, the beanie propeller goes and he flies out of it, you know, and someone else they need this top hat because they have to have a rabbit in it because we need to do I don't know what the hell you do with the rabbit. But but basically what it is is he is a guy who goes every Christmas picks a town and he saves the town from whatever the ravages of the 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 problems are this one is is crime related through a series of beautiful hats that he throws on everyone and then um when christmas day ends and all the evil is gone suddenly boop all the hats are gone and no one remembers what happened and mr quimby is just kind of leaning looking out the window of his flying saucer going yeah as it flies away (laughs) something like that oh i'm so happy well they all have happy endings yeah, that that was a rough one there. I, I apologize. No, that was fun. Um, Joanna, do you want to tell us what it is? Yeah, interestingly, there's if if we put all those three stories together, I think we're getting half of the <laughs> wow <laughs> the actual story. But um, uh, Mr. Quimby's hats is an idealistic and warm story. Martin Quimby, who's actually played by Ernest Truex, who was in oh. So Martin Quimby is looking forward to his retirement next year from his employer, Stokes Wholesale Business. When he makes a mistake and orders too many children's Christmas hats delivered the day before Christmas, Quimby is given two weeks to sell all the hats or risk being fired. Mr. Quimby gets the idea to rebrand the Christmas tree hats as love hats, headgear to be worn by adults year-round, 
to express brotherly love, kindness, and affection for everyone. Quimby isn't able to convince companies on his concept, but when he sells the idea to his boss, Mr. Stokes, then the product begins to sell. After selling tens of thousands of love hats, Mr. Stokes forces Quimby to go to court to respond to hundreds of lawsuits filed on behalf of the love hats. Judge Potts admits that the lawsuits all sound frivolous, but he becomes overwhelmed with the complaints himself. The judge changes his mind when he walks the streets unknowingly wearing a love hat himself. <laughs> and and so it's an idealistic, warm story about having holiday spirit year round. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay, the love hat, the love hat. You know what it's I mean? It's funny if... If I had had like 40 more seconds, I might have come up with that one. Yeah, the, the Edwin as an alien throwing hats on people's heads was not my... Yeah. It's so different from this TV movie called The City Killer, where this guy wants to get Heather Locklear's attention, so he starts blowing up buildings, and they call him the Love Bomber. Oh, yeah. So the Love Hats and the Love Bomber are like polar opposites of each other. And I think when we're talking about the spectrum of love, we should use that as our tail ends. <laughs> yes. Right, so we can figure out which one's psychotic and which one's kind of nice. Um, so yeah, that problem solved. Well, I never would have come up with that. That's a very kind of complicated story in a way, isn't it? That's fun, yeah. Yeah, I want a love hat. And yeah. I like this one too because it stars Ernest Truex. Yes, as in the lead, um, but it also stars his real life wife, who was also an actress. Her name is Sylvia Field. And they actually starred together a bunch of times on TV, but TV viewers may remember her more um, commonly. She played Mrs. Wilson on Dennis the Menace. Oh, Oh, wow. Wow. It's a lovely little family, the Truixes, finding out. (laughs) Pretty cool. And somehow somehow the guy from Sleepaway Camp got in the mix thing. I (laughs) I don't understand that part, but... Okay. Oh, yeah, so I did all this really, really great prestigious TV. I was in Sleepaway Camp. Actually, he's done tons of stuff. I'm kind of making fun. That's, but that's what I remember. Him. He, was in a, he was in a Galactica 1980, if I remember. Oh, I almost started watching that this weekend. It's it's fun. It's fun. I like it. Well, yeah. it's it's very Van Dyke. Yes, yeah. That's yeah. all, that's all I, you I, have to say to dive me. Dive in. Dive yeah. in. I'm ready. I'm so ready to dive into Barry Van Dyke. Um, okay, so... Okay, let's go to our next one. What's the next one, Joanna? Okay. Um, the next one is a 1958 episode, Christmas episode of the U.S. Steel Hour, and its title is One Red Rose for Christmas. Okay, Dan, why don't you start? Okay. Um, so <clears throat> we are uh, – huh. okay, so I'm going to use – now – I want to put because he was in a Twilight Zone, and I'm I'm using I'm accessing those from my anthologies. Peter <laughs> Falk was in a Twilight yes, Zone. Yes, that's right. And Peter Falk is playing a um, a um, uh, secret agent who has to uh, uh, break through uh, into the Iron Curtain. You know, we're in the Cold War. Things things are crazy. And he has to get some sort of for it's a MacGuffin, whatever, whatever it is he's after. He has to get some sort of formula. And and the thing is, it's Christmas time, and he has left um, a family. Now now this this being anthology time, this this being the time of sitcoms like in the late fifties, early sixties, when all the dads were widowers. Mm. He's a widower, and he has like three. Su- 
Maybe Fred McMurray is in this. Let me. Fred McMurray is his boss. He has three sons back in the U.S. that he wants to spend Christmas with, but he can't because he's behind the Iron Curtain trying to do this thing. I don't know. Let's say, did they have microfilm around, around then? I don't know. Whatever it is that they were trying to trying to go after, he, he's trying to get. And what? Um, uh, oh, 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 um. Jeez, uh, oh, who you, you guys know the the episode that the uh, the um the uh, um the Twilight episode, the Hitchhiker. Yeah. Yeah. What I the I forget the actress's name in that, but I'd like her to be in this, and I don't remember her name. Maybe I can bring it in later. Um. Uh, she's a blonde. Um. I'm. Uh, okay. Maybe I should go for. Let's just go. Let's say it's Tori Spelling. So so um, <laughs> let's just say that. So so it's story spelling, and um, so um, Peter Falk's character uh, goes behind the Iron Curtain, and um, is trying to get this microfilm, uh, what a microfiche, I don't know what whatever the heck it is, and he's trying to get it out of there, and it's Christmas time, and he and it's snowy there, obviously it's cold and it's snowy, but they're all communists, so they don't celebrate Christmas. I don't know what the Ruskies celebrate, but. He's desperately trying to get this thing and get out of there and get home by Christmas. And he's got like sort of like um, Steve Martin in Planes, Trays, and Automobiles when he like opens up his ticket and like the camera, like the light zooms in on the time. He's got he keeps like looking at his ticket like mm, this. If I can get back to a, like uh, never uh, West Berlin, you know, I can't. Is that right? I can get on a plane and I can get home in time. What complicates everything is he meets Tori Spelling. And Tori Spelling is a young lady named Rose. Mm. And they sort of begin a romance. And he knows that if he leaves here, he is probably never going to get back. He doesn't mean... I, I don't know if she is um, like a double agent working for the U.S. Maybe she is. I don't know. I'm writing this as I'm saying it, so I don't know. But I, I think maybe that's like... Maybe that's his contact or something. And he meets this red rose in Russia and just falls for her and she falls for him and he doesn't want to leave, but he has to get back to the So So the conflict is sort of... Like, maybe he even gets the microfilm, and he's like, oh, F it. I want to stay with her. But he's got the, the, the sons, and I don't know. There's conflict, and there's craziness, and I don't know. Fred Gwynn shows up. There you go. That's the end. <laughs> well, Peter, Peter Falk and Tori Spelling would make an interesting couple. Yes. I meant to, I Eve. No, not Eve Arden. I forget the name of the woman in The Hitchhiker. She's the one I was thinking of. But um, we're going to have to go with Tori Spelling because yeah. I can't remember the Hitchhiker. Always go with Tori Spelling if you can't find yeah. an alternate. <laughs> Because she's always uh, okay. Um, I was going to say Shelly Hack, but she was oh, in our last episode. Yeah, so she I was. I love her. Um, okay, uh, I guess I'll go next. Um, I, mine's only half thought out, too, because I'm really bad at this game. If anybody's listened to previous episodes, whenever I participate, <laughs> it's like, whatever. But um, So this is called Run Red Rose for Christmas, is that right? Right. Okay, so this is a very special episode because the producers were able to get Tab Hunter and Troy Donahue to star, and they put it's a no it's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi adventure where like the whole world has been left barren from war. This is a you know it's like an allegory, and everything has been sort of the the countryside's been raped of like all of its beauty and nature, and there is a very sick child played by Tori Spelling 
when she's a little little girl like she was when she was in um what's that movie called shooting stars where she played parker stevenson's daughter like that old like 10 and um and she's got some kind of post-apocalyptic disease that they make up a name for like heeny landing disease that's a good one don't ask me to repeat that and it's ravaging her body and the only thing that could save her is the sort of self formation that you can find the whatever you want to call it the sort of chemicals that can be found inside a red rose but there's only one red rose left on the planet and tab hunter and troy donahue who were at one point married to the same woman at different times and we'll say it's eve arden they, since you mentioned her name, and I love her, they yes. they are at odds with each other because they both had horrible breakups with her, and but they both still love her, and they're constantly fighting over who was the better husband and blah blah blah. Even though she doesn't love any of them, and she's run off with Peter Falk apparently, and so, <laughs> and so they have to go on this adventure together to save this little girl. So they actually have to put all of their differences aside, and they have to scale the scariest, most post-apocalyptic mountain in the world, which is called Mount (laughs) Fichinang. I can't even do this. It's called Mount Fichinang, like the disease, right? It's like some word you can't ever repronounce. And and it was named that because no man has ever, because when you translate it from post-apocalyptic dialogue, um, you see it's called No Man's Land. That's what it translates to. And so they have to get to the top of that and find the one red rose, then murder it. So that they can bring it down the hill and give it to Tori Spelling. And it's an adventure like you've never seen. And it's actually a 90-minute episode because Trey Donahue and Tab Hunter are in it together. And that's like the most amazing thing that ever happened. And They they did a lot of ad-libbing. They do. They do a lot of improv. They play off each other. It's great. And... Um, and of course they find it and they save Tori Spelling's life and, um, and everybody's happy and they actually do it on Chris. I should say they do it on Christmas Eve. Um, okay, Nate. Oh, I really liked yours <laughs> and Dan's too. I was like, Oh my mine's going to be a little boring in comparison, but no, 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 nothing. Um, <clears throat> see, I'm picturing, uh, Robert Reed Ooh. and he's kind of like a, um, you know, a, a workaholic. You know, he's maybe a little more neglectful towards his family than he means to be. Like, he gets caught up in just, like, the commercial side of Christmas more than anything else. So he's a little bit jaded when it comes to Christmas. And he's walking down the street, and there's uh, a boy, a really poor boy that's selling uh, flowers, and he's selling roses. And he kind of bothers Robert Reed a little bit to buy one, and Robert Reed just kind of... You know, it's like, yeah, fine, I'll buy one, I'll buy one. And he just buys one and just kind of throws it in his car. Well, on his way home, he spots a woman hitchhiking, played by Mary Tyler Moore. And she's hitchhiking, and he stops and picks her up. And he, um, the, the show is basically going to be about them driving on this Christmas uh, Eve uh, in the car uh, as they drive. And he... Basically, it talks about how much he doesn't care about Christmas, and she actually loves Christmas, and they kind of bond a little bit about that, um, you know, in, in more of a friend kind of way. You know, there's nothing more than that going on, but she kind of helps re, you know, brighten his uh, Christmas spirit because, um, you know, he kind of learns about her home life, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not ideal, but she still keeps her head up. 
you know, she's very poor, but she's uh, still a very upbeat personality kind of person. Um, and as she's leaving, he just kind of um, not thinking, just gives her that uh, rose as she gets out of the car. Well, he goes home and actually ends up having an awesome evening with his family and everything and decides he might want to thank this uh, stranger just for, you know, uh, getting him back into the holiday spirit. So he goes back to her house, and this is where things get a little crazy because when he gets back there, she an, an older woman answers the door. And um, I'm thinking um, um, the actress that played Aunt B. Oh yeah, okay. She answers Frances, the door. Francis 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 Bavier or something yes. like that. Yes, is that right? Yeah. She answers the door, and he walks in, and he starts asking about you know Mary Tyler Moore's character, and at first it's like confusion, uh, and then he sees her picture on the mantle, and he's like, well that's her, and it turns out that she died many years ago. She was hit by a car walking home on Christmas Eve. Mm, and I love it. He goes to the cemetery nice. where they say that she was buried because he's like, no, this is impossible. This is impossible. Um, and he goes back to the cemetery to see where she's buried and lying on her grave is that red rose. Oh, I love it. Oh, love it. Love it. <laughs> it's favorite. kind of I was it's kind of bittersweet, but she did help him get back in the Christmas spirit. Oh, I want to see that oh. movie so bad. Robert Reed and Mary Tyler Moore would be like off the charts for me. Yes. <laughs> now, is 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 the the majority of the film the drive in in the car? Yes. Is it and the, and the, I think oh, I picture that we would get flashbacks some as well regarding sure. her life and then flashbacks to his life and just mm-hmm. kind of how they're on both ends of the spectrum when it comes to Christmas. And I, I would also add moments where they have the radio playing and they get assorted like Christmas carols and things coming in that sort of spark their mind. Absolutely. I like that places. idea. Yeah, yeah. Include that. Um, it's the I best like that, Christmas yeah. movie I never saw. Yes, that is the one. My idi- <laughs> idiocy. That is great. Yes, it is. That was fantastic. Uh, wow. Joanna, what, what is one Red Rose for Christmas? What is it? Well, first of all, all three of those stories are just... They blew my mind. Those are all <laughs> fantastic. This, the actual summary I'm going to read <laughs> is not going to be as impressive. <laughs> but it should oh. be because this was really hugely critically acclaimed. But here, let me let me uh, summarize it a little bit. This is a live production about a young troubled girl named Kathy, played by Patty Duke. Hmm. And she's brought into St. Catherine's Orphanage to live. The mother superior, Seraphim, played by Helen Hayes, Mm. scolds the girl for being careless, lighting candles in the chapel. And later, when a fire breaks out, the nun blames the little girl. Although everyone is safely evacuated during the fire, the stress causes an ailing nun to die. The Reverend Mother experiences an emotional crisis and finds herself overly angry with Kathy, and blames her for other crimes for which the girl is not guilty. The Reverend Mother confesses confesses her guilt about poorly treating Kathy, but her crisis causes her to feel a need to step down from being a spiritual leader. At Christmas, Kathy disappears, only to return with a gift for the Reverend Mother, a special gift that shows her desire to be friends, despite her treatment. And this... Um, Live production from 1958 was so hugely well-received. Helen Hayes ended up getting Emmy nominated for it. Oh, wow. 
And they restaged it the following year with the same cast. So this was a really big deal when it came out at the time. But an orphanage and a mother superior don't really compare now to the (laughs) stories that you guys created. We went to some. Nate, may I may I um, say say one more thing? I don't know um, because I today I rewatch Manos, The Hands of Fate. Oh, I love that movie. uh, one of the joys of that is like the thing where they drive into the space and it's like this this building wasn't here before. Could it be something where like maybe the final tag scene is he says I he brings his family. And he's like I need you to meet her and the house isn't there. It's like what's going or is that one step too far? Well, I is think that, that it would it would uh, mess up the whole idea of the rose itself. Now, where would the rose oh, yes. come in? Okay. At? Okay, yeah, all right. No, I, I just had that thought. Uh, I like the idea, ago. though. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, and maybe it could be worked in somewhere, maybe in a later draft or something. Yes. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll this talk was just a rough draft. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Oh, I'm glad as of, with a rough draft that you already had the stars corralled for it, though. Oh, thank you. It, it, helped me, it helped me envision it a lot better. It sounds, I would watch that movie over and over again if it was real, like over and over again. Yeah, if I, I would just, just for the for the road trip sequence, I would be, I would be in there for that. Because I, I was going to, I wanted to, the, the very first script I wrote when I was in college has the final act as a long road trip sequence in a blizzard. And I love stuff like that. And so the moment you started that, Nate, I was like, oh, <laughs> you all about it. it. There then. you go. Well, yeah, see, for yeah. me, I think that the kicker would be that people would expect that they might uh, end up having like a romantic relationship. But like, it's mm. not about that at all. It's almost like she's no, no. an angel like sent to get him back in the Christmas spirit. And I love the fact that maybe she could not not only do the things come up on the radio, but maybe she like sometimes has control of the radio. If something comes up, that's like if the news comes up, like you know there was a fire and there and all of a sudden, boom, hark the herald angels. Or she could just like change that, it to what you know? she wants it to. Be. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and maybe he he doesn't spot it, you know, because he's looking out the window or he's whatever. It's very subtle. Yeah. Yes. Nate and I will be writing. This, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know how we're going to get Robert Reed and Mary Tyler Moore and then be back, but we, we it's worth all the voodoo that we worth. can conjure. Oh, I know Aunt B. I know Aunt B. I'll call her. Everybody knows Aunt B, don't they? You and you'll have to make Ron Howard a kid again. Yeah. Oh, yes. But I think yeah. he might be up for that. He might he actually might be. <laughs> okay, so what's the next one, Joanna? Oh, boy. How about a 1955 Christmas episode of Climax? And the episode title is The Day They Gave the Babies Away. Uh, Nate? Okay, let's see here. (laughs) This will be an interesting one, I'm thinking. Um, I'm picturing um, Zsa Zsa Gabor is head nurse at a (laughs) hospital. Sure. Sure. And, you know, there's like it's it's Christmas time. So it's a very like harried situation. It's like so much is going on. And she's just like, oh, my goodness, like I'm working on Christmas already. And all these people keep having babies on on Christmas Day. It's, it's, it's insane. And um, somebody comes in to pick up um, some packages and um, they accidentally take all the babies away. But then they get them back. It's a Christmas miracle. Now, the description is terrible. I understand that. But, like, I'm trying to think of an instance where they would give all the babies away. And I'm thinking maybe a hospital. 
maybe the hospital is just the Christmas rush just causes a bunch of confusion. I don't know how anybody <laughs> walk out with babies, but they do. Oh, no, 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 no. I got it. I got it. Everybody, all the parents walk out with the wrong babies. Oh, it's all a big mix of son of a bitch. It's a comedy and it's just a huge comedy of errors that lead to like the Wilsons take the Smith's baby and the Smith's take the, um, Girdlinger's baby. Um, <laughs> There's like so many mix-ups. So then they have to like the Jaja has to go all around town <laughs> and switch these babies out to the right parents. And um, she's able to do that on Christmas Eve. And it starts to snow at the end. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Merry Christmas. It's very, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And at the end, it's she's like exhausted, and she's like, "Oh man, I am never working Christmas Eve again." <laughs> 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 That's a wonderful one. I would watch that one too. Just Jaja Gabor chasing around in a nurse's uniform. Yeah. Chasing Just people and babies. She, all the people took their own in the home. <laughs> and how does she even, darling? Like, I can't even do her accent. Like, you darling, know I mean? I'm afraid you took the wrong infant's home. <laughs> yeah, I would watch that a bunch of times too. The same <laughs> night I watched the Mary Tyler Moore. I would watch thing. it just because it sounds unbelievably absurd. <laughs> it's good. Oh, if if Eva Gabor shows up, I would be there one hundred. I'm so into it already. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, Dan. This is a movie where Tony Franciosa and Shelley Winters play two yes. anamorph- anthropomorphic storks, and so I don't know where the storks are. I want to say the storks are based in the North Pole, near Santa. And so it's Christmas Eve, and um, now Santa, he owns his property, but the storks, they rent. And unfortunately, on the morning of Christmas Eve, as all these babies are coming in, you know, those little, um, like, um, white, like, not not like a diaper, but you you know, the st- you see the storks dropping the, the white bags with the, the, the sheets with the babies, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah, you know your cartoons, um, uh, at that morning, as as they're like, okay, the Christmas babies are coming in. The Christmas babies are coming in, um, and and like I said, Tony Franciosa is in a in an anthropomorphic stork, like the Lion King, you know, where they do the like the stage production of the Lion King, where they're all like in like you know, um, so they're there, and basically this evil guy played by Jack Klugman shows up, <laughs> and he says, "I'm foreclosing on this place." You've got 24 hours to get all these babies out of here because I'm taking over. And so what happens is, as these babies are pouring in, they have to basically give the babies away. Because they don't, they have a, uh, an advanced telemetry system and sort of all meteorological things and stuff like that, where they send the babies to certain points, but it's like, these, these babies may not begin to the right homes, but they have to get to a home. So you start to, you know, you they, they start to send babies to places where they're not, you know, like good homes, but not specifically the homes that they're supposed to go to because they have to clear everything out because they're going to lose the space. But then what happens is the moment they clear everything out and Santa comes by and says, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Stork, how you doing? And Tony Franciosa is like, oh, no, this is uh, there. We're clearing it out. And Shelly Winters is like, oh, doing a Shelly Winters thing. What happens is Santa, played by Claude Akins, of course, um, <laughs> says, um, I, I, I don't know who that man was who came to your door. 
uh, what was Jack Klugman, sir? No, they didn't say that. I don't know who that man was that came to your door. But one month ago, I bought your lease. And so you are under my protection now. So that was some sort of fraud. Someone was trying to... One of those babies is is like um, a very... I, I don't want to say it's Jesus. Oh, you're taking but my maybe idea. maybe I will. Maybe I will. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just came up with that right now, man. I'm so sorry. But but I won't say Jesus. One of those babies is no, Milton Berle. <gasps> it's one of those babies, Milton Berle? Where were you going to send that? You know, and they send all these babies out. So suddenly what happens is... They've sent all these babies out to random places. Then they suddenly realized they, they didn't have to because this was like a gangster clubman. So now they have to do everything they can over the course of Christmas Eve before Christmas Day begins to basically sort of like swoop in, intercept the baby, put the baby in the right spot. And so that's sort of the second half of the film is them trying to get the baby. And they travel all over the world doing it. So it's like... Who knows? Omar Sharif is in it. I don't even know. Um, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Tev Tevier. Uh, I forget his name. You know, everyone oh, is in yeah, it. Yeah, they're talking know? about. Yes, and everyone. Everyone. Topol. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, and everybody is in it. All John Saxon. Why not? You know, and suddenly everyone is in it because it's it's something about um, reversing this this wrong that happened uh, accidentally. And, and bringing the babies and putting them in the right places before everyone wakes up on Christmas morning and they go down and look under the tree and they have the right baby. Now, I know that's not the way childbirth works, but that ain't the way the synopsis works, so deal with it. That is <laughs> rock on, baby, rock on. Well, in the universe of the movie, it's perfectly fine. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, <laughs> so this is called The Day They Gave the Babies Away? Yes. Okay, so I'm thinking it's the year 2000, because when the year 2000 came, there was this total panic about the second coming of Christ, and then that's when all the rapture things started and carried over into the next decade. And so um, there's every thousand years, there's always a panic about the second coming. Um, and so it's the year 2000, and there's a barbecue. There's a little town, and there's a barbecue. And just stuff happening in the little town. Um, this is going to sound a lot like another movie to begin with. Um, and all this, they're all everybody's just doing their thing in their little town. It's very idyllic and sweet and nice, and everybody likes each other. And then something happens, and everybody it looks like everybody kind of passes out. And like one guy falls asleep on the barbecue and gets killed. It, I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody yet. And um, and then they all wake up, and nobody's sure what happened. But some time has passed, just a little bit of time, but enough. And it's sort of like this phenomenon. So this doctor, played by June Lockhart, comes to because she's curious about this phenomenon that happened in this town. She would have been played by Kirstie Alley in the remake, which was John Carpenter's Village of the Damned. So what happens is everybody uh, wakes up, or they wake up, and then they find out that all the women are pregnant. And nobody knows exactly how it happened. And it causes a lot of problems with, like, the guys who can't have children and things like that. There'd, that'd be, like, two people in the town, I guess. And and nobody can understand how this phenomenon is linked to the pregnancies. Well, it turned out that there was a second coming of Christ. But just to keep it kind of different, 
they impregnated a bunch of women and only one of them has Jesus, right? But they don't know which one it is. But at the same time, there's like the equivalent of the Roman soldiers in modern day. So what would that be? Would that be like the Knight Riders gang or something like that? And so like there's like a motorcycle gang and they're like the, the people who have come from hell and it is their job to kill all the babies so that they make sure that Jesus doesn't have a second coming. So then the people in this little town, even though they love all the little babies that have come, have to give them all away, not knowing which one is Jesus. And so they all get shipped off to different parts of the world. But June Lockhart, being the kind of doctor that she is, you know, very intrepid, and also one of the first young female doctors in the country, um, feels like it is her job to pursue this um, real baby. She has to figure out which one the real baby Jesus is, and then she has to bring it back to the town because that is where the kid is supposed to grow up for things to happen the way they need to. So the second half of the movie is sort of the adventure she goes through where she has to, like, because she's being chased by, like, the, the satanic motorcycle gang. And so she has to, like, you know, keep one step ahead of them and sometimes fight with them and everything like that. And she picks up people along the way that help her, too. You know, guest stars like Jack Klugman or Earl Holloman or somebody like that. And um, and then at the end, she finds the baby Jesus and she's able to bring him back home. And it turns out that the dad is Christopher Reeve. And everybody's super happy because oh, he must be God, right? So, <laughs> and he's in Village that of the Damned. perfect sense. Yeah, and he's yeah. in the remake of Village of the Damned. So, and that's how the movie ends. Wow. I love <laughs> it's it. a lot. I love it. I love it. Can June Lockhart's uh, daughter be in that? Was she? In yeah, that? I think Ann, well, Anne Lockhart will be young enough that she would have to make a cameo as one of the babies. Okay. Okay. It's her first role. It's really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. <laughs> so what is it actually about? I think Nate probably was the closest one. Did Nate get it right? Oh, yes. I'm sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's feasible. I, like, this mix-up at the hospital. Anthropomorphic storks? That wasn't? No, I don't I don't know that what? that's ever happened on TV. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let me just explain, and then you determine if how close you got. How about that? Okay. Okay, so um, it's important to know that this is based on a true story, and it's about... I win! <laughs> it's about a family of Scotch immigrants that come to America and settle in Wisconsin in the 19th century. The family grows to include six children with Robbie as the firstborn son. A diphtheria epidemic sweeps through the family, taking the father, Robert, and later a typhoid uh, epidemic. <laughs> Jesus. Mamie on Christmas Eve. The mother's dying wish to her 12-year-old son, Robbie, was for him to find homes for his five young siblings and himself. No one family will adopt all six orphans, so on Christmas Day, in the snow, Robbie takes his siblings on sleds door-to-door -door throughout the community in Wisconsin and takes advantage of the sentiment of the season to find homes for each of his brothers and sisters. Now, when you said he took them out, I thought you were, he was going to take them out in the snow and, and bury them. Well, 
Like if they were like if they couldn't be together, it was just Couple the end of everything. And I was like, oh my god! But then it didn't go that way at all. He instead, and several of them are crying, but he instead pushes them on neighbors. So um, this is as gut wrenching as you think it is. Want to want to buy a kid? Yeah, I liked it better when they, he just buried them all. And based on a true story. Wow. This this 1955 one hour TV episode was so popular that it was turned into a feature length movie in Hollywood in 1957. <laughs> that's called All Mine to Give, hmm. which still airs on wow. Turner Classic Movies every Christmas season. So this isn't that hard to uh, find. This this so this was the time when America was loving I Love Lucy, but boy, they wanted to see those little. Kids get, yeah. yeah, okay. Well, I don't fully understand. It's $64,000 question, I love Lucy or this? Mm, I can't decide. They're so, or anthropomorphic freaking storks. Come on. <laughs> or a village of the damned with June Lockhart and Jesus. Jeez. Uh, that was or, the tagline, with June Lockhart and Jesus. Or Jean-Jean Gabor running around trying to fix <laughs> hello? a bunch of baby hello? mistakes. Hello? These are, ugh. We know entertainment, the networks don't, is what we're saying. They clearly didn't understand how to entertain the masses in 1958 or whenever this aired. And that's just very disappointing. I guess it would be before 58 since they made a feature length in, like, 57. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm going to say ours collectively would have gotten better ratings. I know that one was phenomenally popular, but I think all of ours would have been groundbreaking entertainment. I- I think think of the climax of, of my, would have been like the last Starfighter if you remember that film, sure. the computer graphics. That that's how it would have been. It would have been them swooping in and grabbing the babies before they got like Detroit, no Duluth, Des Moines, no um, Dayton. You know Walla Walla, Salem, Massachusetts, what? And they got to go across the country all the way. You know that kind of thing. It was crazy. <laughs> it was the best. It was the best. Um, okay, so we missed that one by a mile. Uh, let's do one more. <laughs> Joanna, do you have one more for us? No, that's all I got. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Make one up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was fun. That was really fun. Oh, yeah. I think I think Nate had the most marketable ideas of all of yeah. us. And so, and I don't know how we're going to get that Robert Reed, Mary Tyler Moore thing made, but. I feel like that was my best one. It's Honestly. probably the best thing anybody's ever created in the history of creation. Did you <laughs> like it even awesome. better than what was my one that year? Was it? It was Joyce DeWitt and <laughs> somebody Bob else Denver. walking in the snow. Bob Denver. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> oh no, Edward well, you, walks stilts in the snow. No, you did one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, one, the killer snow. You did one with Joyce DeWitt and a crocodile, and the only reason why that one failed was because Joyce DeWitt got eaten by the crocodile. Yeah, I shouldn't have had her get eaten. Um, no. She should have survived. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been the best thing you've ever come up with. Oh, but this she is survived now. in my Killer Snow one. <laughs> well, you really like Joyce oh, yes. Dwight, I can't believe I didn't use her. Th- oh, well, we did 50s this time, so that's why I didn't use Joyce DeWitt. Well, we did use Tori Spelling. Oh, yes. <laughs> I used Tori Spelling because I, cu- I couldn't remember that Inger Stevens was the name of the actress. Oh, that's who it is. Yeah, I know who it is. Yeah. And she she died at <laughs> she died at age 35 in 1970. Yep. Which yep, is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I, so Inger Stevens, Tori Spelling. Yeah, I also threw in Tom Selleck there for Mr. Quimby. 
Mm-hmm. But so it was just I, whatever you want. Yeah, I was just going to say Ed Wynn and David Jansen for everything, but um, I, I didn't. Oh yeah, I should. Wow, that was so Did, much fun. I could keep going. Yeah, yeah. I wish. Ugh. Do we let me? Um, I, I have Meryl here. Maybe I can yell out a Christmas. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No, no, no. We'll do. Okay. We'll get again. We'll come together next year. That was so much fun. Yes. So I guess uh, we'll wrap it up here. And I guess we'll start with Joanna. Do you have anything you want to promote? Um, I want to remind everybody the expanded, updated edition of Tis the Season TV, the Encyclopedia of Christmas-themed episodes, specials, and TV movies is will be coming out next year. And I also have a podcast. It's called Christmas TV History. It's It's got five installments right now, and they range in everything from the history of Christmas TV movies to TV variety shows, animation. Wow. Uh, and adapt, TV adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Ooh. Oh, my gosh. It must be yeah, a, they're really good. thousands they're really of those. Good, yeah. Cool. Okay. So um, that's great. And I'm really looking forward to the expanded book because the other one wasn't yes. big enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be two volumes or is it just going to be like a volume that's so big that you can't, like, you have to set it down on a chair when you, you can't hold it in your hands or... Yeah, I have no idea what it's going to end up looking like. Um, I don't know yet. I don't have any kind of control over this, but it's going. It, the The previous one was 780 pages, something like that. Yes. Yeah. This has quite. This has twice as much content, just just in terms of listings. Wow. So I don't. Wow. I don't know if they're just going to have to make it a bigger book or an oversized uh, book or or. I don't ooh. know. Oh my god! I was going to. I was just say Tolstoy, War and Peace, suck it. You got you got a new contender here. Yeah, come on. That's right. Well, I can't wait to see that because I'm going to look up all these movies that I couldn't I'm come excited. up with the name of earlier that I was talking about. <laughs> That'll be helpful to me. Well, I see so many of these movies. Some of them air like over and over every year. And if I I don't have cable anymore, but they will play on the syndicated channels, and I'll be like, oh, here's the one with Nicole Eggert, and I'll sit down and I'll, I watch that one every year. Like somehow it just shows up on my TV, and I watch it without fail. But I don't know the name of it. It just comes up on TV, and I watch it. And um, so the guide will be helpful. Plus, it'll help me discover some of these. So I'm kind of curious. Are you going to dedicate like a whole chapter to Saving Christmas with Kirk Cameron? <laughs> No. That's 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 a, that's a online only uh, chapter. I think you gotta like. Yeah, that's a chapter. that's the extra supplement. That's like yeah, when you do like the Indiegogo or whatever, that's gonna be like yeah, the gift that everybody gets. It's like a whole chapter on saving Christmas. Uh, keeps on giving. <laughs> keeps on giving. It it does in my mind anyway. Um. So Dan, what's going on with you? Hey, what up, everybody? Oh, um, uh, what what's happening? Um, uh, Adventure Super Train. I'm about to put up episode eighty. Which uh, I, I can't really tell you much about. Bourbon Street B continues. Masquerade may or may not continue. It will continue, um, but there's maybe something new going up on it. Um, uh, the Happy Days podcast. Uh, I'm almost at the end of season two. We're about to enter season three, the realm of the live audience. And, and I will say that if you guys go on eventuallysupertrain.blogspot.com, you can link to. Uh, that Rockin' All Week With You, the Happy Days podcast. Not the only Happy Days podcast, because there's another very good Happy Days podcast going on at the same time. Um, but uh, guess who's coming to Christmas? 
Joanna joined me for that, and we had like a 45, 50-minute long chat about that. Yeah. It was a really great chat, and it's a really fun episode. And and so that's up, and um, I'm in between minute by minutes right now, and I'm still working on the Henningverse, having some having a little publisher trouble at the moment, but um, hopefully everything will be, yeah, it, it'll, it'll, it'll get resolved. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what's going on. And, um, and I'm on this episode of made for TV mayhem show. Enjoy me. <laughs> so Nate, uh, what's going on with you? I know you guys just had your 200th episode, right? We finally, we finally covered blood and black lace, but I wasn't able to make it. I was Aww. really sick. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. Yeah, it was unfortunate. Well, but... happy 200th episode anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, are you guys doing any commentaries or anything like that you can tell us about? Oh, so I should say you're on the Hysteria Continues in case people are just tuning in. Um, Actually, I don't think we have anything on the horizon um, commentary-wise, uh, which is kind of surprising. We usually at least have something going on, but no, right now we don't. Yeah, but... the, end of the, the end of the year it gets kind of quiet, I think. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, I'm looking forward to us doing another commentary. I thought Amazon's was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good too. point uh, for us to bring it up. I think I brought it up in the last episode, which is going online here in a couple of days. But um, so the Made for TV Mayhem show did their first DVD commentary. Uh, it was for a 1984 TV movie called Amazon's. It's really interesting. It was directed by Paul Michael Glazer. has an amazing cast. Um, I talk and talk and talk like that really fast. And so I don't know what people's threshold for that is. But I guess it turned out I had a lot more information. I always do like 30 pages of notes. So I don't run out of stuff to talk about. But then as it keeps going, I realize that I have too much stuff and then I try to cram it in. And then I and then I become a mad person. So you guys were great to, like, support can, me in that. Can can I just say um, when when we finish recording, I, I want anyone who's going to listen to the commentary, I contribute. But there's there's one moment where Amanda is. Uh, discussing, I think, I think a second wave feminism. I might be wrong on that. But as you were discussing that, I actually had the movie playing in front. Uh, obviously, we had the movie playing in front of us, and I was seeing something that I hadn't quite seen before. So I was taking some notes, taking some notes, and then you said, "Well, this is that, and that, that. What do you guys think of this?" And <laughs> my, my Nate didn't say anything, which was the wise choice right there because my response was um i don't have anything to say so 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 you got you got to get to hear that because i i had another thing i in my mind so i apologize to everyone listening to the commentary that was me at my stupidest right there just trying to oh, uh, it was fun. i was I, I, no i thought we had a great time doing it it was i was like 6 in the morning for me so i was a little tired but yeah, uh, but but yeah, and, and I felt bad because I would have loved to have responded, but I thought you were doing a sort of closed thing, and I sorry I didn't have a response. <laughs> well, that that's happens. okay. That's Folks. a that's a moment that came and went, Dan. I'm sure most people won't even okay. like really notice okay. it. But there's a, we do throw out a lot of information. It turned out to be a really interesting, fascinating film. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I have anything myself to promote. Except that I am working on the Trapcasts, and I'm hoping to record some, meaning have a few in the stable, and then release them monthly. But I don't know how that's going to work. I just finished the script for one. So 
I've got one down that I can just record, but like I'm going to try to do several in the next month, but I don't know if I'm going to have the time, just some more work landed on my plate. But um, other than that, it's just the podcast and we're hanging out. And so um, I don't really know what we're doing in January yet because our schedules got kind of crazy and I started inviting people from other countries and I'm not really sure how to schedule everybody and I haven't chosen their films yet. So just Keep paying attention to us. You can find us at www.tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com or you can follow us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show or you can follow us on Twitter, which I think is just at TV Mayhem Podcast or you can just drop us a line at TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. I believe that's the g- Gmail address. And um, just, oh, and we're on Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem. So, if there's anything you want to talk about, um, TV movie related, anything we've done, anything you'd like to talk about in the future you think we should cover, or just a TV movie you want to reminisce about or whatever, we're here. So get in touch with us, and we will see you in the next year. Thank you so much, Joanna. That was so much fun. I had a lot yeah, of fun, too. Thank, thank you, Joanna. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I always, always love our year-end uh, Christmas episode with Joanna. It's, it's always so much fun. Yeah, it is. It so is. Sure. And, but yeah, but the, this one's special because the Emmy goes to Nathan Johnson for One Red Rose. One Red on Rose in you uh, think. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever the title is. You well won. done, Nate. Well done, sir. Thank Emmy. you very much. <laughs> you I'd like to thank everyone. Yeah, I want to thank all the listeners and thank everyone and um, and thank myself. You are welcome to yourself. So, okay, anyway, we're just dragging on. So we're going to go to bed, guys. And so thanks so much for listening, and have a happy holiday, and we'll see you next year. Make up Christmas Day Carol singing down the street Everyone's so friendly when they meet These are the things that make up Christmas Day Church bells ringing Children singing Everyone's enjoying Christmas Day How many hits does a man have to take before he expects one from everyone he meets? (laughs) Come along.